is Bad Boys and Beyond with your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. The game's over and the Pistons have won the world championship. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Bad Boys Beyond. I am your host, Mike Payton. You may know me from Pride of Detroit. I cover the Detroit Lions. Uh, you've probably seen me on Twitter with my Fresh Prince stuff all the time and all the dumb jokes that I make. But I am starting a new venture with a good guy, and uh, I'm very excited to welcome everybody to Keith Black Trudeau, basketball historian, my co-host, Bad Boys Beyond. Uh, so here's what we're going to do here. This is what our show is going to be all about. We're going to be talking every week about a different Detroit Piston uh, over, over time. It doesn't matter if it's the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, 2010s. We're going to talk about Mike James and Bill Curley and <laughs> Isaiah Thomas and John Sally. We're, it, it, anybody that you can think of, we're going to talk about them. So um, let's just go to Keith here. And uh, Keith, you're kind of new to the podcast space and uh, you have a very successful basketball historian Twitter. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you fell in love with the Pistons and uh, what makes you a basketball historian. All right. Well, r- really my, uh, how I got started I, as a very, very uh, young lad, I, People ask me all the time what my uh, what my first uh, Pistons game was, and I, I just tell them it's the Bird Steel game, which for all I know, it's probably true. Uh, all I remember at the time was, you know, that that, that, green, uh, that green trim parquet floor, and there was a lot of excitement, a lot of drama, and I was five at the time, so that would that would that would that would that would uh, put the timeline just about there. But um, anyway. Uh, so my introduction to uh, uh, basketball was basically, you know, for the first four or five years of me watching, you know, just as a casual, you know, fan, as much as a fan as a, you know, six, seven, eight year old can be. Uh, I, I didn't know a world where the Pistons weren't uh, world world champions or at least contenders. So, you know, I just assume that's how things always were, or, you know, I assume that they were this, you know, powerhouse that had been doing this long before I was born, you know, funny to find out uh, that that is very untrue that it was actually the exact opposite. So from from that point on, I was I was really hooked into the idea of trying to figure out how the Pistons got from, you know, being as this basement dwelling team to this this powerhouse that that I knew and loved. And I found out as the the bad boys, um, slowly phased out I, I found out that I was still really interested in the things and happenings that were going on around the NBA and I, I realized from that point it, it's not I wasn't just a, a Pistons fan I, I really loved uh, the sport of basketball I, I loved studying the history of it and really for the last 30 years that's been my uh, my passion is you know, really studying the history of the game. And I feel like it adds to, and I, I'm still a Pistons fan today. I, I still uh, regularly watch the league today. And I, I feel that knowing and understanding the the history of the sport uh, greatly adds to the understanding of what, what I'm watching now and what's going on right now. Um, 
you guys out there, the ones, uh, the, the the people that listening uh, that know my name would know me from the my Twitter account, uh, Charlatan28. And yeah, e- even that was, all right. I, I, I've been slowly collecting, um, I, I've been building up a, a library of old uh, NBA films and, and footage and uh, a lot of it's old Pistons games, but not not even close to all of it. I, I would say at least 40% of my collection is non-Pistons stuff. And I, I really never had any outlet to share my my passion for the history of the game with anybody else until, you know, I wandered on Twitter and started, you know, posting uh, videos. It actually happened the, um, uh, believe it or not, it actually happened the night uh, Kobe Bryant passed away, where I... In the, in the back of my mind, I remembered, you know, Kobe's first, uh, his first basket against the Pistons was really, really cool, where it was, he, you know, he blew by Lindsey Hunter at, at half court, get a night, did a nice hesitation dribble, went by three Pistons and scored. And I, I posted it and it, it got such a great response that I was posting little clips here and there, um, you know, in the weeks and months afterward. And Starting the next uh, season, I was I was posting full two minute two uh, or two minute and twenty second uh, videos that were featured that, that were featuring you know what happened this day in Pistons history, um, you know however many 15, 20, 30, whatever years ago, and I, I'm I'm actually really happy. I didn't think it would lead to this, but I I was actually very happy with the response, and there are other people out there that are you know, touched by the videos that I put out there, the people that didn't know the history uh, of the team or of the game. And I, I'm really thrilled with the response that it's gotten. And, you know, even, and I want to mention, like there are sons of players that multiples that, that have reached out to me and said, okay, my, you know, I, I didn't really have a relationship with my father or, I was born well after my father retired and we don't keep this stuff, you know, around, you know, could you, you make a little clip for me or could you, and, and those are like, I think those are the coolest uh, unintended moments that I've had uh, where, where I'm actually being, <laughs> I'm actually able to share, you know, you know, history with, you know, someone who's, whose father or uncle or whatever played in the NBA and they, they never actually got a chance to see him play. Uh, but anyway, the, I, I, I'm really happy to, and thrilled to, to start this podcast today. I'm sorry for the long-winded intro. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is going to be a, it's going to be a Pistons-centric podcast, at least to start, but I would very much like to get into, you know, the overall history of the game, you know, as this progresses. But, you know, for the start, to start out, the, the bad boy fans out there, uh, we will definitely, you, you will not be unhappy with the amount of content we're going to give you over the next, uh, you know, weeks and months. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, speaking of bad boys, uh, for me, that's kind of, that's how I got into the Pistons. If the basketball is my first love. I cover football and have for a decade now, but it was basketball that got me into sports and it was the 1988, uh, Detroit Pistons, uh, year-end review videotape that my uncle Jim gave me 
I wore that thing out. I watched it probably every single day. It wasn't even the year that they won the championship, but it was, it, it yeah. was just, it was everything to me to, to watch that over and over again. And then I started collecting basketball cards and I would just sit there and read the back of them just over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, basketball is a, it's a beautiful sport. And, uh, and once again, speaking of bad boys, I'm going to go ahead and segue us into today's topic is Isaiah Thomas the baddest of the boys, Zeke himself, number 11. Uh, we are going to be covering him today, and uh, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to go uh, start from the beginning. We're going to talk a little bit about his time at uh, uh, in Indiana and um, kind of his college years and uh, and what made him kind of the, the, the guy that the Pistons were looking for. So, yeah, Isaiah Thomas and – you know, we're, we're going to go over some broad strokes today. Um, I, the people that, that are listening, we, we know the story about Isaiah Thomas. He grew up on the, the rough south side of Chicago. Uh, he was one of the, you know, best point guards of his era, highly recruited player. And, and I want to get into this. Uh, it, it, it was so rare for both little guards to dominate uh, basketball in his era. And, it was also rare for players not to stay for uh, four years of college. And, you know, Isaiah, you know, he bucked the trend in doing both. Uh, yeah, he, he did attend the Indiana University for, for, for the people. That I, I, I mixed those up before on my Twitter account and I, I, I the, the alumni made sure I paid for it. Um, yeah. So I thought it was interesting that he was recruited by by Bobby Knight, who, you know, famously, you know, one of the best college uh, basketball coaches ever and, you know, probably the most temperamental college basketball coach ever. And, you know, his, you know, system of recruiting Isaiah was almost to insult him, you know, as a way of challenging him. Uh, and, you know, you would think today, you know, a college coach telling a you know, one of the top prospects in the country, you're not good enough to play for me or, you know, you're soft or, uh, you know, or, or whatever, like you know, basically challenging your manhood. I mean, most prospects would, would, you know, that would be the only conversation they'd ever have, but, you know, with Isaiah, it almost, you know, had the, this re reverse psychology effect where it drew him towards Indiana and really with, Isaiah and Bobby Knight, that, that was the best player by far that he ever coached, uh, at least at the collegiate level. And, and within, you know, a couple of years, Isaiah Thomas led Indiana to the, the final four, won the most outstanding player. They won a championship. And then, you know, from that point on, he, uh, he entered the draft as, as a college sophomore, which, you know, in 1980, I understand Magic did it a couple of years prior, he, he followed that exact same path, but magic was also six, nine people weren't even entirely sure he was a point guard. You know, they, they, they know he had those skills, but they didn't know what position he played. The Isaiah Thomas was just a classic, you know, six foot six, one uh, floor general, you know, in a league that was dominated by big men. And uh, like to, to emphasize, to, to really hammer that point home, Isaiah Thomas was only the only guard picked in the top 10 in his own draft you know he was the only player under six six picked in in that in that top 10 you know and he was he's listed at six one i have seen isaiah thomas i'm six one i don't think he's taller than i am 
I, I, I'm pretty sure he's no taller than, you know, Chris Paul, or maybe he has an inch on Allen Iris. I mean, they, it's, it, he's really, really short uh, compared to, you know, the pantheon of, of great players of his era. And this was the big man that, days. Yeah. I don't think that's really talked about enough. Like, <clears throat> like, like people talk about Isaiah and they say, okay, he's in the top, you know, 20 or 30 or, or 40 of all time. He's in the top. <clears throat> he's in most people's top uh, five point guard lists, you know, somewhere in like the three to five range, you know, except for Pistons fans, which I, I get it. He is the greatest Piston of all time. But I mean, he's, I think, fourth or fifth on, on my list of the greatest point guards ever, which is still, that's a hell of an impressive, you know, accomplishment. But what I'm getting at is what makes him six out of, he's the only little guy on the list. Like, like all the other, like Oscar Robertson, even Steph Curry's six, three, six, four. I mean, he, Steph Curry's a much bigger player than people realize. And then you have, you know, Oscar magic, like Isaiah was, you know, he's just a little like normal sized human being. And he was able to accomplish all of these things. And, you know, his, his first game as a, as a piss and he had, well, I think 31 points, 11 assists as a 20 year old rookie. Like he, the stuff that he could do, especially in an era where you couldn't like people ask me, like, how come dribbling is so much better today? It is, but that's because the rules are different. Like you, you can put your hand, you know, three quarters of the way underneath the ball now. Whereas, you know, when Isaiah's day, uh, just a bait, what would be considered a basic crossover today would be a turnover 40 years ago, because, you know, the, the rules were different. You'd be called for traveling or uh, palming. So Isaiah's, uh, his main weapon at his size uh, wasn't crossing people. It was just, you know, his ability to handle the ball with his fingertips, you know, the, the speed dribbling people uh, go on YouTube and, and look up the, the clips of him doing speed dribbles. It's, it, it's really, really impressive. The amount of control he could have, you know, while basically keeping his hand no more than, you know, a quarter turn over the top of the ball. Uh, it, it sounds basic, but it's not because he was just blowing by people doing that, you know, in the NBA. So like, and I, and I also want to make this point, you know, the, the Pistons prior to him getting there, uh, they, they, they were 90 games under 500 in the previous two seasons. Yeah. It was <laughs> like, rough. Yeah. The, um, you know, Dick Vitale had famous look, they were in bad shape to begin with, but you know, Dick Vitale came in and, and poured dirt over, you know, the franchise. He buried them six feet under. You know, he traded all their draft picks for for guys that didn't work out. And, you know, by the time it that it was clear that he didn't really know what he was doing, he got fired. And, but they, he had already given away the farm. So, you know, the, the Pistons were kind of just stuck in this nowhere, nowheresville uh void where i mean 37 and 127 i can't get over that i i I had to look it up today just to make sure i remembered it correctly just that's you know yeah in comparison today uh by comparison today the uh like the last two years were you know the losingest two years the pistons have had in you know probably the lifetimes of most of the people that are listening to us right now uh, this is this, this is like 20 games better 
than the last two years of, of this current generation. And, and they were blatantly tanking. Like the Pistons didn't have a draft pick for one of those two years. They were, they were tanking. They were just that bad. Well, you know, I'm glad you bring up the losing seasons because obviously these recent losing seasons led the Pistons to getting Cade Cunningham. And, uh, and back in the early 80s, these losing seasons that they were having led to them getting the number two pick where they would take Isaiah Thomas. Uh, now, do you think that the Pistons were interested in Mark Aguirre, Buck Williams, or anything like that? Or was Isaiah the guy? I, I am relatively sure Jack McCloskey, um, who was the, the great Pistons GM at the time, I'm relatively sure that he zeroed in on Isaiah because he, you know, if you ever asked him about Isaiah, he would never bring up the talent first. It would always be the competitive nature that he had. Um, no, nothing against uh, Mark Aguirre, uh, but I, I don't think that he really thought that Dallas would pass on Aguirre anyway. I mean, Isaiah made sure of it because, like, the, the funny thing is, and, and the people that watched the documentary would remember this, but I, I the, the Bulls actually had, I believe, the third pick uh, in that draft, and Dallas was one. They're the expansion team, and the Pistons were two. And, you know, he made it clear he didn't want to get drafted by Dallas. And in Dallas was like, fine, you know, we're, we, we won't draft you. We'll draft, you know, the 6'8", you know, scoring uh, Dynamo out of DePaul. You know, you're the 6'. I, I, don't, I don't know if they really believed in him as much as Jack believed in him. You know, and he, he famously, he tried the same thing with Jack. And Jack's like, you know, look, um, it, it's 1981. We don't have unrestricted free agency yet. Uh, you are clearly the best player on my board and I'm going to draft you whether you like it or not. And, you know, to, you know, to Isaiah's credit, you know, he, he, it was a ploy, but you know, he, he didn't carry a grudge or anything. He wasn't unhappy to come to Detroit. You know, he, he, he took ownership of the situation and he made the best out of it. No, clearly. So yeah, as much as I like uh, Mark Aguirre and, you know, he, you know, he himself on a, contributing greatly to uh those championship teams but i that's a future episode there yes yeah i i I think if the pistons had the number one pick i don't think it would have mattered i think jack would have taken uh isaiah number one and i guys don't take this out of uh context but like when you're starting out from the bottom like basically expansion level, which is what the Pistons were and, and what the Pistons were, you know, a year ago, you know, when you're starting out from the very, it's not enough just to draft talent. You need to draft a leader. You need to draft that guy that all the other guys that you draft after him are going, you acquire after him are going to fall in line behind. Cause that's how you, that's the difference between teams that make it out of the, the bottom of the league and the teams that just stay there for 15 years. And you wonder why, even though they're drafting in the top five every single year is because there's no structure. There's no, there's no leadership, you know, in the locker room. And I, that's why I was so thrilled when they drafted Kate Cunningham uh, a year ago, because, you know, more than the talent uh, it was the leadership. And I, I, I see uh, those qualities, Again, I don't want to say that he's going to have anywhere near the same impact as Isaiah Thomas. I'm just saying that the, the strategy, the, the philosophy is the same. Like Isaiah, Isaiah was unquestionably a strong personality. He was a leader and he was a guy that was going to get his success one way or the other, uh, 
regardless of where he went in, in, in the league. You know, it's interesting that year that, you know, Isaiah showed up, uh, had a pretty good year, you know, his rookie year, obviously, uh, averaged, uh, let's see here, 17 points a game. You know, that's nothing, nothing to uh, shake a stick at or anything like that. But Buck Williams, of all people, is, you know, and no disrespect to Buck Williams, one of the great defensive players yep. of the late 80s, yep. early 90s. He wins rookie of the year that year. Um, it's a bit strange. I don't know. When you look back at it, it's kind of it, it, it it's kind of like it almost feels like Scotty Barnes winning over Kay Cunningham. It's kind of like the same, the same feeling. I, I, I was about to say Evan Mobley, but yeah, no, you're right, because Scotty Barnes ultimately was the the winner. But no, that that is a perfect parallel because I was thinking the exact same thing towards the end of last season. It was pretty clear that Kate Cunningham. Even though I, I, I'm not saying I would have objectively that I would have voted for him for rookie, but it, it, the margin of that he that he was behind Mobley and Barnes, I thought was a bit embarrassing because he he was he had a far better rookie season or more competitive rookie season than that. But yeah, you know, Buck Williams, the exact uh, same parallel. Uh, wonderful defensive player came in, took a bad New Jersey team, uh, was one of their best players, dragged them to the playoffs. And he got, I don't want to say he got more credit than he deserved, but that, I think that was mainly the deciding factor in he over. And the thing is Isaiah Thomas, if you look it up, he didn't even get the most rookie of the year votes on his own team that Kelly Tripuca actually, <laughs> Kelly Tripuca actually finished behind um, uh, Buck Williams in the in the rookie of the year race, which is ridiculous. But you know, Kelly was the guy. Isaiah was clearly the best player in that that team. But Kelly was getting you know the accolades because he set every and he still holds every Pistons rookie scoring record ever. Like he he was that good at put, putting the ball in the basket. Uh, he and Isaiah, by the way, still the last pair of rookie teammates ever to play in an All Star game in, in the same All Star game. But yeah. Uh Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> speaking of kind of just early in his career and Kelly Trapuca and all that, what a mustache, by the way. Um, remember when Legendary. he used to, when, you remember when the he commercial used to, uh, sensation, Kelly Trapuca. Yeah, yeah. Used to team up with George Blaha for the Pistons games in the late nineties. Mm -hmm. Good, good times, good times. Um, so talk to me about kind of Isaiah's uh, early years, uh, pre bad boys, pre, you know, Lambeer kind of show. Well, you know, you can talk about Lambeer showing up, but, but kind of that, you know, that 82 to 86 region when yep. the Pistons are starting to kind of come up. Um, how, how does Isaiah kind of lead the, the Pistons out of out of this horrible place they were in? Well, I mean, as we mentioned, Isaiah was an all star right out of the box. Uh, he was a sensational and the Pistons improved drastically, you know, from being you know the worst team to just being a garden variety bad team almost immediately. But they were still a bad team. It, it, it took them you know, a couple of years to really be a competitive winning team. And a lot of that had to do with Jack McCloskey uh, finding uh, more firepower to put around him. You know, he, he eventually he found, you know, Lambeer for off of Cleveland's bench. Lambeer was an all-star player almost immediately for, uh, once, once you teamed him with Isaiah. And, you know, he found Vinnie Johnson around the same time. You know, he – he 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 had he had drafted uh, Kelly Trapuca in the same draft class. Trapuca made it made the All Star team uh, a couple of times, but the, the the type of team that was around Isaiah uh, 
in the early 80s, you know, between 82 and 80, it, it was a run and gun team. It was a highly efficient, uh, you know, offensive. Uh, it was a really crowd pleasing offensive show. And, you know, everyone remembers, you know, in 1984, they still hold the NBA record uh, for most points in a the game. They beat the Nuggets, you know, 186, 184. And, you know, they that 83, 84 Pistons team, which was, you know, the first, the, the first full year that their initial core was all together with, you know, with Lambeer, Vinny Johnson, Isaiah, uh, Tripuka. And that team, believe it or not, that, that is still the highest, uh, that, that still hold, that team still holds the highest offensive rating the Pistons have ever had, you know, period championship years all the way to today with all the modern, you know, spacing offensive. Nope. It's still 1980. If you look up in the Detroit Pistons record books, that 1984 starting lineup of Isaiah Thomas, John Long, Kelly Tripuka, Kent Benson, and Bill Ambeer is still by far the most efficient offensive five the Pistons have ever had, yeah. ever had. Which I, I always, I always, I look at that and I just laugh sometimes. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's the year that they had the the highest scoring game of all time, right? Yes, guess, yes, yeah. the same same exact season. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They 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 had they had the best offensive team in the league in a, in a league where. Bird Celtics and, and Magic Johnson's Lakers were at the peak of their powers. And, you know, the Detroit Pistons with little Isaiah Thomas running the show had a more efficient offense than either of them uh, during the, during the year. So um, talk to me about uh, Isaiah and Bill Ambeer shows up and Vinnie Johnson and, and, and obviously Trader Jack is, is bringing in all these players um, they're, they're kind of getting behind Isaiah, but it's, it's really Isaiah and Bill. It's, it's their show. Um, how did that relationship start to build and how did that um, begin to affect the team? And when did that really begin to affect the team? Well, see, all right. Bill, Bill Ambier, everyone remembers, you know, he's the original bad boy. Uh, he, he's the guy that, you know, started the, uh, he was the first enforcer that Isaiah had. He was the guy that, would uh, set the physical tone on the floor, but you know he was a highly skilled. Uh, and we'll we'll get into him in a later episode. But he was a highly skilled offensive player too. He, you know, he was slow. He couldn't jump over a phone book. You know, he y- you might see him take two dribbles on a night where he was really feeling it. Um, but you know, as a as a passer and as a as a pick and pop like that, Isaiah and, and Bill Lambier were an underrated, just lethal pick and pop combination almost from day one. Like Isaiah or uh, Bill Ambeer, not the greatest finisher around the rim, but he was a lights out uh, outside shooter. And he would, his ability to, to step out and hit mid ranges. And, you know, later on in his career, he stepped behind the three point line and he was really good at that too. Uh, his ability to draw the other teams, you know, shot blocking center out of the paint, you know, created spacing for everybody else. And it was with Isaiah and Lambeer, especially they, they both fought the game at a high level, like in t- People ask, um, you know, what, what's the thing that they had in It was intelligence. Like I, Isaiah played the game like a chessboard, and so did Bill Ambeer. I mean, they had different methods of going about it, but, you know, the, the end game was the same. You know, outthink the outwit the, uh, the, the competition, and they were both very good at that. Uh, if you look at some of the great, you know, point guard, big man tandems of all time, you know, Isaiah Thomas and Bill Ambeer probably wouldn't be in anyone's top, you know, 20 or 30 just because people don't think of bill and beer like that but i i 100 
would tell you, you know, if we had, you know, advanced analytics, you know, they, they would speak extremely highly of how the Pistons performed when Isaiah and Bill Ambier were on the floor. They, they, they were, it, they were modern basketball, you know, 40 years before that was a thing. And I think they'd be even better today because Lambier would shoot a much higher volume of threes. I can't imagine Bill Lambier shooting a high volume of threes. That would be, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I know he occasionally would, would get behind the line, but it just, yeah. back in that time to see a big man shoot a three, it, it was, it was crazy. Like I remember when Arvita Sabonis would shoot a three, we were like, I can't believe that somebody that big could do that. And now it's like, uh, you know, you, you you, you have to shoot a three if you're seven foot, you know, you have to be able yeah. to do that. Right. Well, well, I mean, even like, even back then, like, even though Lambier wasn't shooting, you know, a lot of threes in his day, you know, he was still like, it's not like he was playing inside. No, he was still shooting from the perimeter. It just wasn't outside the three point line. Like he was, he was setting up, you know, 15, 16, 18 feet, you know, on these pick and pops. And he would really only roll to the basket in situations where the defense switched and he wound up with a guard uh, on his back. Like he, Lambeer was was still like a, a pick and pop guy. It's just he wasn't getting three points for his efforts. We're going to go ahead and talk about the bad boy years. So, Keith, when did when did the bad boy stuff really start? I mean, I I, I know that you know it, it it you could probably attribute it to the late '80s, that '88 year when the, kind of the Raiders the Raiders got involved with Al Davis and they were the Detroit Raiders and all that stuff. But when do you, when did the Pistons? and Isaiah really kind of start transforming into this, this bad boys team. Okay. And, and this, and I, I think this is ultimately, you know, Isaiah's legacy right here, because I don't know how many superstars in the history of uh, basketball would have made the kind of sacrifices that he made uh, towards the end of his uh, career to, to get to the top. But I really, it starts in, uh, all right. I want to, I want to throw out three games uh, to you. His, his elimination games, uh, or the, the games where the Pistons were eliminated in 84, uh, 85, and 86. Uh, everyone remembers the one in 84, game five against the Knicks, uh, where the Pistons, you know, gave up a record amount of points to Bernard King, you know, over a five-game series. Uh, Isaiah Thomas famously scored, you know, 16 points in the last, you know, minute and a half to force overtime, but they couldn't get over the hump. Isaiah finished that game with 35 points. Uh, 12 assists uh, the, the next season 85 where they they made it to the second round and they were, uh, ran up against Larry Bird who also torched them uh, the the final game of that series game six Isaiah had 37 points nine assists and then there was the game uh, the year after that uh, 86 first round against uh, the Atlanta Hawks which I, I featured quite frequently on my page because i think it's one of the underrated duels uh that i've ever seen was isaiah thomas and dominique wilkins in in game four at the silver dome uh isaiah thomas had 30 points and 12 assists in that game and the, the pistons still lost because you know they had nobody that could stop dominique will Wil anybody on the hawks they were just they, they had too many guys on that team that were one-dimensional offensive players uh, other than isaiah and lambeer and so it, it was clear at that time, even though Isaiah was all NBA every year, he was putting up, you know, historically great numbers uh, for a point guard every single year. It, it was pretty clear that they weren't going to uh, accomplish anything meaningful in the postseason, you know, with the style of team that they had, because they just they weren't going to ever able uh, be able to match the Lakers or the Celtics, you know, or even the Hawks in terms of, you know, overall uh, 
firepower. So, you know, decisions were made at that time. And you, you can say, I don't know if it was Isaiah that brought it up or, or Jack McClossey. Clearly, there was an entire massive organizational shift uh, from 86, from the end of that 86 series on, where the Pistons restocked and rebooted their team with, you know, defensive minded uh, grinders. You know, they, they traded uh, Kelly Tripuka, who was, and I, Look, I'm never going to call T Kelly Tripuka soft. Uh, he, he was absolutely a, a hard-nosed player. He just he, his defense wasn't a, a club in his bag. It wasn't something that he that he could do very well. And then they, they replaced him with Adrian Dantley, who much more of a, a half-court guy would slow the slow the game down, which would help their transition defense. That's why Chuck Daly wanted him. Uh, you know, they went and they drafted. Um, Dennis Rodman and John Sally in the draft that year, neither one of them an offensive uh, minded, they were both uh, excellent defensive forwards, which is what the Pistons needed at that time, because, you know, all the, you know, Dominic Wilkins, Michael Jordan, Larry, all, all these, you know, uh, two, three, four types that were just killing them in the playoffs. They needed a way to stop those guys. And when I, when I bring up sacrifice uh, for Isaiah, uh, there's, there's a reason for that. Uh, 1987 was the last year uh, he made an All-NBA. He, he was making the All-NBA team when the Pistons were bad because he was still putting up great numbers and they had this, this wonderful crowd-pleasing offense. And, you know, once they had that major shift in, in, in roster uh, construction, you know, they, they slowed. They were a top-five team uh, in, in pace just about every year until they made that change. And by 89, they were the slowest paced team in the league. Like it was that drastic of a, of a shift and Isaiah's numbers, you know, suffered. And Isaiah, he, he would, he was still making the all-star game. He was getting that every, but he was no longer in the MVP conversation. He was no longer making the all NBA teams. Uh, it, 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 he would always show up in the playoffs. I mean, he had the, you know, that magical run where in, in it, really in 87 and 88, where he was averaging you know, 25 something points, you know, nine or 10 assists, you know, he, he still, he set a, a record for steals in a postseason in 88 that it just blows away anybody. I think he's 12 more than the next highest guy on the list. Uh, he, he would still show up in the postseason. He would give his best, but you know, he, he understood his job you know, to compete for a championship, he had to sacrifice his minutes, his numbers, uh, and really his style because he was a much better player up tempo than he was in the half court. He had to reinvent himself in order to make his teammates better because that's what was going to get him past Bird and Magic, and you know, keep him ahead of uh, Michael Jordan. But I, I mean, we we can talk about the you know the bad boys and you know, their, their physical tone and, you know, the different way that they did things. But it, when you, when you look at it through the perspective of Isaiah, like he wasn't built for any of that. He was this little six, one, six foot, you know, guard that, you know, everyone else on the team, you know, was a big guy. Even Joe Dumars was a pretty well put together guy. And, you know, all of those guys could hold themselves in a fight. Isaiah could fight you, but it, it's, it's not like, he was going to walk away unscathed, right? Like Isaiah fought Bill Cartwright once. Cartwright has him out, you know, outweighed by God knows, you know, 50 some pounds. He's a foot taller. And, and the thing is Isaiah, and this goes back to what I said before, being the leader of a team, 
you know, if, if you wanted your teammates to play a certain way and you're the leader, you know, you need to, you, you need them to see you doing that, that same thing. You need to be the, the foxhole with them playing that way. And Isaiah wasn't built for it at all, but he still did it. And he still did it. I think very well for a guy that, you know, his size, you know, he was, you know, people credit Allen Iverson all the time for going in and, um, challenging seven footers, you know, relentlessly and getting knocked on his ass. Isaiah would do, could do that, but Isaiah was also doing that on defense. You know, he was taking charges, you know, some of my most memorable Isaiah Thomas moments are, are moments that were you know, not even on offense. They were on defense. You know, when he would, he would box out, you know, Charles Oakley or Robert Parrish or guys that would, you know, way, way, way bigger than he was. And he, you know, he would box them out for a, a crucial defensive rebound. And, you know, he would take that coast to coast and force the defense, you know, to knock him over. Like it, Isaiah Thomas sustained so many injuries uh, during that bad boy era. He could have, he, he could have played, you know, well into the late nineties. Um, like he could have been Chris Paul if he really wanted to do that. And, you know, he, he beat the crap out of himself basically in order to, you know, put himself in the history books and, you know, as far as the bad boys go like that, that's Isaiah Thomas's um, that's his contribution to that bad boys team as much as his talent or anything else. Speaking of, you know, just kind of beating the crap out of yourself and sacrifice. I mean, you know, you look at the games like the, in the 1988 finals, you know, he hurts his ankle in uh, in game six, which, you know, the ref ended like a minute early. I don't care what anybody yeah. says. I, I'll never let go of this the ref ended that game like a minute early. It, se it seemed like anyways. Uh, so gutsy performances like that, obviously are something that, that you'll always remember Isaiah for. And. Um, I accidentally muted myself. Whoops. <laughs> uh, so yeah, gutsy performances like that uh, are, you know, something that you always remember Isaiah for, but I always look at that, that bad boys team. And I've always thought that Isaiah was kind of like, I, I, like the little, like almost the little brother of the team. Obviously he was the leader of that team, yeah. but it, it, it was almost as if, all right, you know, these are all my big brothers and you guys are out here to defend me, make sure I can get the, you know, set up the plays, get the, get the, uh, the baskets. And, and you guys go start the fights. I'll start the fights. You guys finish them. Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of, that's, that's uh, what I've always kind of looked at Isaiah as, I mean, is that, you know, pretty accurate? Yeah. I mean, it just, I, I, Isaiah, one of the great playoff perform, even in the games that he lost, like Isaiah was one of the few guys where, you know, even if you, you look at the games that he lost and he was so amazing, like he, he was so good that he could lose, you know, a critical playoff game and still people would be talking about how good Isaiah was, you know, because he did everything in his power to try to carry his team over that hill. And he just, it just wasn't in the cards. I, I just, the, uh, I, you've been over the 86 or excuse me, 88 game finals, uh, game yeah. six. Uh, I, but there was the, I mean, he was really good in that, that bird steel game, you know, up until that last pass that uh, game five of 87 you know, I, I was, I've already been over, you know, his, the first three times he was eliminated, he was averaging, you know, about 35 points and 11 assists in, in those th three games that his team got eliminated from the postseason. Like it, it was, 
And the thing is, he, he was great in games that they won too. It was just like, if you just look at Isaiah Thomas's stats, um, I, I don't think that even comes close to telling the, the whole picture of how good he was because he didn't feel the need to dominate every game all the time. And I, I think that's something that a lot of today's point guards struggle with. They think if they're not, you know, scoring 30 points or they don't have, you know, 15 to sit that they're not doing their job, you know, the stars anyway. And Isaiah Thomas was one of the few that was, that had that ability, but was understood that there was times where he needed to take a step back and allow his team, uh, his teammates to get their games going, get in a rhythm. And then there was times that he needed to take over and be the man. And I, I think of all the point guards really in NBA history, I think Isaiah Thomas had a good, as good an understanding of that uh, as anybody. So then, uh, you know, we'll flash forward a year then in 1989, the Pistons, they, they, they finally, you know, get the, the monkey off their back. They beat Boston. They head to the finals. Uh, obviously, they got their monkey off their back the year before when they beat Boston. But they beat Boston yeah. again. They head to the finals. And uh, this time, they take out the Lakers. And, um, you know, I think most people will remember that series a little bit more for Joe Dumars uh, since he had a hell of a series, won finals MVP and everything. Um, you know, for me, that's the thing I always think about is, is, is Isaiah in the, uh, in the locker room. Um, say, uh, sing in heaven must be like this yeah. by the Ohio players. But, uh, you know, what I, you know, and, and, and the 89 finals were great. It was a great sweep. It was, you know, uh, it was a good time. But the 1990 finals, they almost feel uh, forgotten. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it's kind of weird. Right. You know, they, you know, this is the year that Isaiah wins the, uh, the finals MVP. They beat the Trailblazers four games to one. Most people don't even really talk about that finals. Why do you, why do you think that is? And, and uh, you know. I mean, be, because it wasn't against the Lakers, which is, I think yeah. the, the ultimate failing of uh, uh, the 1980s is that, you know, if you didn't do something against, you know, the Lakers or the Celtics or Michael Jordan, you know, people kind of, you know, pretend it doesn't exist or they just forgot, they've forgotten that it had entirely. And <laughs> That, that 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 90 blazers team was really good yeah i mean they they i think they were clearly the best team in the, the they didn't have the best record but i think they were clearly the the most talented team in the western conference that season and you know why they had two all-star guards and one of which was terry porter who a wonderful playoff performer uh in his own right and isaiah just took terry porter apart i mean that he it's almost like he took that as a personal challenge uh especially when the blazers jumped all over the the pistons from the very first game you know they, they kind of punched them in the mouth and the pistons were this close to letting the game slip uh and isaiah just goes off in the fourth quarter you know one of the best one-man takeover performances uh i think i've ever seen in a finals game where he just no one on portland could guard him once isaiah decided that he was going to to take over and dominate the offense. And really it was that way for most of the series where, you know, and it's not like Porter played badly or it's not like, or Clyde Drexler, uh, he played pretty, but Isaiah was by far and away the best player in the court for either team, that entire series. Like he was really, really, really good. And yeah, but it wasn't against magic. So people kind of just, I don't want to say they dismissed it, but they don't talk about it. 
uh, maybe as much as they should have, because that was that was Isaiah Thomas's. You know, he he would have been Finals MVP had they won in '88. But that was it was almost uh, akin to like watching Steph Curry this this past uh, uh, month. You know, finally get his Finals MVP trophy, even though it was kind of a we we all knew that he was their best. He was their franchise guy anyway. Right. But like that was kind of Isaiah's thing. Where like, yeah, um, Joe Dumars was Finals MVP the year before, but did anyone? was there any conversation that Isaiah Thomas wasn't the best player in his own team? Of course not. Like I, I, that was a well-deserved moment for him. And, you know, people remember the Vinnie Johnson shot uh, in game five, but Isaiah Thomas made the play the, the the time down the court before he made, he made the uh, 18 footer that tied it, you know, with I think 30 seconds left. And I think people kind of forget that like, it, it, it was that that was his you know moment whether people want to recognize it or not like that that was kind of the capper on on Isaiah Thomas's greatness that, that 90 series uh, against a really 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 good uh, Portland backcourt but that was just kind of another example of how Isaiah kind of raises himself uh, or raised himself to the challenge uh, you know whoever he was up against like the better it seemed always seemed like the better players he played against the, the better he himself played. Well, so I have a take. I have a take about that 1990 final, specifically game five, specifically the Vinnie Johnson shot. Um, now, I, people are probably not going to like this, but when I think of game-winning shots, I think of game-winning shots in like a game seven. Uh, we were up, we were, we, the Pistons were up 3-1. You know, yeah. it, it was a big game-winning shot. It was great. Like, there was what 30 seconds left even after or 24 seconds left even after he after he hit the shot there was no the seven seconds left sorry there was seven tenths of a second seven right? tenths of a second sorry sorry seven tenths of a second even if he misses it you know the pistons are probably likely to just win the next game anyways i don't know i just feel like we 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 overvalue this amazing game winning shot of a series that the pistons were up 3-1 in and probably were going to win anyways um <laughs> on one hand i agree with you uh be, well the game was tied so even if he misses the shot they go into overtime and they, there's a good with all the momentum they had there's a good chance they do win anyway right and yeah they were up three, they were they were up three one but you know i thought portland had played significantly better in the palace than they did you know under their they, they kind of got crushed under their own expect because they weren't expected to to beat the pistons in that final like the pistons were heavily favored but you know, Portland played so well in those first two games that people were thinking that they really had a shot at this. And you could almost see it in game three. They get out in front of their home fans. They're, they're kind of loose, but they're almost too loose. And the, the Pistons uh, really turned on the, the championship uh, intensity and they were just kind of weren't ready for it. And then, you know, anytime you're getting your ass kicked, you know, in front of a sold out crowd in the finals in front of your own fans, that messes with you. It does. So I, I, I do wonder though, if Portland had won that game five, how would the rest of the series have gone? Cause then, then it's only three, two. Right. And, yeah, and they, they had plenty of confidence playing at the palace. So I'm not, I'm not saying that they would have won the series. I'm not even saying they would have won the game if any had missed, but I, I, I do think that was one of those times where you have somebody down. It, it, it was one of those, those step on their necks. Don't let them get back up moments. So I, I do kind of wonder how things might have changed if the Pistons had allowed Portland to get back up. 
Yeah, that's uh, man, you know, not to belabor the point, but that Portland team, incredibly underrated, uh, you Very. know. Yeah. Went to the finals. We can bring him Buck up again. Williams again. And he was all, uh, you know, all uh, NBA defensive uh, mm-hmm. first team that year. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, they went back to the finals like two years later against the Bulls. Mm-hmm. I know we're a Pistons podcast, but maybe someday we should do something on that, on that Portland team. Uh, but all right. So kind of moving on, um, you know, now we're, you know, the, the championships are out of the way. The banners have been risen and now, you know, you get to that 1991 Eastern Conference Finals against the Bulls. Uh, the Bulls obviously win. The Pistons, you know, leave the court early. I'm making quotation marks. <laughs> they because, did. To be yeah, fair, they did. I know. But, you know, in, I, and just like Isaiah says in, in the 30 for 30, you know, Boston walked off the floor in, yep. in, in 88. You know, like it just happened. Like teams were just doing that. It, you know, uh, so I – I know how it looks because it's Detroit and, and they're the bad boys. And that's why they, you know, everybody's zeroed in on, on what, on what they did. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, let talk to me a little bit about I, Isaiah's the end of his career is kind of having a, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say falling out with Bill Lambeer, but they certainly had, you know, the, their relationship kind of stifled a little bit and, uh, and then retired. All right. I don't know if their relationship ever really soured. I, I know the moment that you're wanting to talk about, but I, I do think there's a lead up to that. I mean, it really starts uh, really in 91 with Isaiah, who, by the way, and no one, no one wants to mention this. And I don't really like to mention it either because it's an excuse because injuries are part of the game. Like the, the Pistons benefited, you know, from injuries in, in, in 89, as much as injuries hurt them in 88 uh, and, and in 91. But Isaiah Thomas was playing that postseason with a broken shooting. Like it wasn't, it, it was broken during the season and he kind of rushed back, you know, it, today he would, he would have been out for the year, like in March, like they wouldn't have, they would not have rushed him back, but you know, he, obviously you have a chance to go for three in a row and no one was going to keep Isaiah off the floor, but Isaiah was so his, his wrist was so bad, Like you can see the playoffs, like teams are just backing 20, you know, he would, he would be at the three point line. The other, the other guard is sitting at the foul line. Like they knew he was out there to just pass the ball and really not a whole lot else. Like there were games where he wasn't even allowed to play. There were playoff games where he was coming off the bench just to provide some support, even though everyone knew that he shouldn't be playing. Like just, that was the kind of, again, the kind of sacrifice that he made, cause it made him look bad. It, it, it and it made, made him look, you know, like he was washed out. And he wasn't, he was just hurt. He couldn't shoot the ball. And so by the time they got to the bulls, like I thought it was a miracle that they got past the Celtics, uh, to be honest, in the second round, they weren't favored to win that series. And, you know, the bulls hammered them. And again, I want to make this perfectly clear. The bulls at that time were probably the better team, even if both teams are healthy, they, they were on the mission. The Pistons were a little bit older. Uh, the, the Pistons just, they didn't quite have, the ability to keep up, to keep the bulls down. Like they did the previous two years, uh, guys were getting older. Um, but the, the whole reason that, that they walked off the court wasn't because they were mad that they lost. I, I think that they understood, you know, that was part of, you know, being a champion is eventually someone else knocks you off the, that hill. But I, and, and I encourage people to go and look up, you know, the things that the bulls said about the Pistons after they had won game three at the palace to go up three, zero. 
Like they basically threw the their uh the entire legacy of the bad boys, you know, in a trash can. And and I don't blame the Bulls uh to an extent for doing a little victory lap because you know those teams rightfully hated each other and the Pistons had bullied them for three the three prior years. So I I don't blame them for you know getting excited or wanting to rub it in a little but I, I think they clearly crossed a line. And I think Isaiah, if he was here, would probably agree with me, you know, in the ways that you disrespect, you know, the champion that you're dethroning, like the Pistons didn't do that to the Celtics. The Pistons didn't do that to the Lakers. Like there was respect paid. And, you know, as soon as the Bulls, you know, got the upper hand on the Pistons, they, they, they kind of, you know, Jordan and Pippen, especially, they just went to the media and just, just clowned, you know, their legacy clowned uh, everything that they had accomplished. And it was very, I don't, I can't remember any other point in NBA history where that's happened, where, you know, one team was on the, the verge of dethroning another team. And they basically were telling, you know, everybody that could listen that that team was, was, were, were frauds, you know, or that they were joke or they were bad for the game. Like in the moment, like, I don't know if they would have walked off, you know, with 30 years of hindsight, if, if they would have still walked off. But in the moment, I can't imagine anybody in that position that wouldn't have walked off the court. And, you know, in that cost, Isaiah, you know, again, <laughs> sacrifice <laughs> that cost Isaiah, you know, tremendously, as we know, like he was left off the dream team, you know, primarily because whether Jordan wants to look, whether Jordan's hands are clean or not. You know, the fact is he didn't want Isaiah on that team. You know, Pippen didn't want uh, him on that team either, but no one cared what Scottie Pippen thought in 1992. Right. Um, but, and, and you know, the really sad thing is that Isaiah was, people remember that people uh, remember that Isaiah Thomas lost a, a gold medal in 1992 for being, you know, blackballed off the, uh, the uh, dream team. But that was the second time that that he had a chance to go to the olympics and win a gold medal in 1980 uh he would have been the star on that team uh back when he uh played at indiana and they had that olympic boycott uh in the summer of 1980 where the u.s you know refused to send athletes and he would have isaiah should have two olympic gold medals right now he has none because he never was allowed to participate and you know and that bleeds into you know, I, Isaiah getting, and again, I, this, I don't think he holds anything against John Stockton, but, you know, he torched John Stockton for 44 points, you know, the night after he found out he wasn't going to make the team, you know, I, I think he was trying to make a point not to Stockton, but to everybody else. Like, you know, I think it was more out of frustration than anything. And that, that cost him because Carl Malone laid him out the next game and, you know, sent him to the hospital, you know, almost as punishment. And it was just this kind of downward spiral where, Isaiah's, uh, you know, Isaiah's ghost kind of came back to haunt him towards the end of his career. And, you know, his own, as I said this before, his own physical health was declining, you know, rapidly, you know, as, as, as far as his ability to play on the floor where, you know, to the point where in, where we're going to get to this in, in 93, 94, his last season, he was only 32 years old. Like, like think about that today, that they're, they're 32 year olds, you know, getting max contracts. Yeah. Katie's 33 and he's, you know, yeah, yeah. Right. Isaiah was 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 32, and then if you watched him play that last year, he was the only year of his career where he didn't make an All Star team. He was like, were, he was old Isaiah for maybe one game out of five, 
and, and you know the rest of it he was he was looking moving around like he was a 40 year old and you know he had the chance to go make one last run at a ring people forget uh the knicks uh their starting point guard doc rivers uh i i want to say it was an acl but he he was injured and lost for the year um about halfway through that season and the knicks uh tried they 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 offered they they eventually got Derek Harper but they offered uh, the Pistons you know their first round pick you know in exchange for Isaiah who everybody knew was retiring at the end of the year anyway and I I don't know if yeah that would have been an interesting what if absolutely yeah but I don't know who I don't know if Isaiah um said I don't want to go I want to stay here if it was Bill Davidson but Bill Davidson shut it down uh, whether it was at the behest of Isaiah or not, I don't know, but I know that trade doesn't get shut down unless Isaiah is against it. And, you know, as a result, Isaiah doesn't, you know, maybe he has one uh, crazy last run at a ring, but he also gets to retire at a Detroit Piston, you know, for the entirety of his career, which, you know, how many superstars today get to say that they played, you know, their whole entire identity as a player is, is tied to one team. Like it doesn't happen. Certainly not but, anymore. Yeah, the, yeah. Yep. So, but yeah, you're right. Going back to that, uh, that one, that one play where that 93, 94, uh, season, God, that's still today. That, that is still the worst Pistons team of my lifetime. Um, and if you look at that roster, you say, why I'd say they, they, the chemistry was really bad. Um, they brought in Sean Elliott, who I don't think there was any love in that locker room between Elliott and, you know, the holdovers and, you know, they, they had drafted Allen Houston, Lindsey Hunter. They, they didn't like, they're, they're both good players, but they, they weren't ready for the, they weren't ready to be full-time NBA players at that time. And, you know, when, once it got clear that the Pistons were going to be not even close to being a playoff contender. Um, yeah. I think that's when frustration started, started to boil over. And, you know, I, Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lambeer, you know, set a pick on, I think it was a screen on Isaiah Thomas in a practice and, you know, Isaiah Thomas, I, I'm sure he had been hit by that screen a, a thousand times in practice, you know, together over the over the 12 years they played together. But I guess for that one, that one moment, um, frustration got the better of him. And, and you know, he punched Bill Lambeer and wound up breaking his hand. So that was um, and that that was kind of the end of their that that was the end of their relationship as as players. But I, I don't because Lambeer retired a few weeks later. Like he just said, this is it. I, I, I don't even want to finish the season. I've had enough of this. And, but I, I don't see any evidence that they, uh, that, that, that it strained their relationship personally. Yeah. Could you imagine, um, you know, I mean, I know everything kind of ended that year, but just a couple different scenarios. First, Isaiah Thomas on the, on the Knicks, Isaiah, Charles Oakley, John Starks, Patrick Ewing, um, you know, I can't remember who else was on that team. Pat Riley coaching. That would have been a very, very interesting 1994. Uh, it, you know, Jordan's gone at this point. Yeah, uh, that, that year, yeah. Right. Maybe the Knicks, maybe the Knicks give the the Rockets a, a, a better series with Isaiah on the floor. Who well, knows? I mean, it went to seven. I mean, they were. Uh, well, maybe they win. Uh, is yeah, what I well, I'm, I'm saying, saying is like the Knicks are up three two in that series. Uh, yeah. John Starks had a chance to to win them the championship uh, at the end of Game Six uh, with a three pointer from the corner, and Elijah, you know, got a fingertip on the ball and deflected it. 
but I, that that's one of the like crazy what it like what what if because john starks was on fire that game he was making everything so like that's how close um the knicks came to winning a championship in 1994 and you you won and Derek harper was really good for them um i don't want to say like he he kept it no he he was highly motivated in that postseason run like people thought he was kind of washed up like the knicks rejuvenated him so i i, I do wonder a little bit like could i could could isaiah have even at at his you know age and his physical condition uh could he have been that difference that one point or two point difference between you know the knicks winning and losing a, a championship like it's and, you know, the Pistons wouldn't have gotten anything out of it. I mean, it would have been a, you know, end of the first round draft pick. So it's not like the Pistons had a chance to replenish themselves if they traded him. It would have been more just a favor for to to Isaiah to give him one last chance at a, at a third ring. But it, it, I mean, you know, that team was set up almost perfectly for him to run it, though. You, you have to admit, you know, that slow, deliberate, half-court style, very similar to the bad boys, uh, wonderful off-ball shooter in John Starks. Nowhere to the level of Dumars, but the same archetype. Um, yeah, that, that and pe- people forget about that. And that, that's one of those little interesting things in history. You're like, man, if, if if they had pulled the trigger on that deal, how, you know, NBA history could have itself could have changed dramatically. And, it w- you know, we'll never know, but it's fun to talk about. You know, the, the other scenario is Isaiah sticks around for one more year, maybe more. He's playing with Grant Hill. Uh, Drew, Joe Dumars, Allen Houston, Lindsay, Lindsay Hunter. I, uh, it seems like such a stacked team um, for that 1995 year. I mean, obviously, you know, the year was it, it, they won like 26 games or something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't very good. And, and they, they started making it to the playoffs, you know, the couple of years after that, especially at 97 team, which we'll definitely have to talk about sometime. Um, you know, does Isaiah change anything if he sticks around a little bit longer? That, that's one of those what ifs, which are because it, yes, Isaiah tore his Achilles in, in 94, which ended any hope of him playing, you know, ever again. Uh, but it was kind of an open secret that he was retiring that season anyway, that he would, okay. uh, it, it was assumed that he would join the front office as a, it may possibly a, a general manager in waiting, which didn't happen for reasons we don't have time to get into. Um, but I, I don't know if Isaiah really wanted to keep on playing uh, after that season, it was kind of, and again, this goes back to what I said, you know, his physically, he was spent, like he was, he was playing in pain. His his conditioning was not what it was Uh, like maybe playing for a, maybe playing with Grant Hill might've rejuvenated him playing, maybe playing with the Knicks might've rejuvenated him. I, I can't answer that, but like he was, Every, everybody treated that last, that 94 season, like kind of his like farewell season, especially, you know, the last month or so um, it would have been really, really interesting to see he and Grant Hill, you know, play together, like him pass the torch that final year. Right. I just, it's tough for me to envision a scenario, a realistic scenario where it would have happened. Oh man. The what ifs, the what ifs. Um, so Keith, you know, Isaiah Thomas, he tears his Achilles tendon at the, uh, in April of 94 against the magic, um, and his career shortly thereafter. Um, and then he, he kind of goes into, uh, you know, a realm that a lot of, a lot of guys try to go into is, is kind of business, uh, within the basketball world, coaching, um, running a team. 
he uh, he gets set up with the Toronto Raptors. And, um, you know, tell us a little bit about that and, and kind of some of the impact he made on that early, uh, the franchise's early years. Well, you know, once he, once it was clear that he wasn't going to, you know, be a Detroit Piston for life and he had to, you know, strike out on his own. I, you know, the, the Raptors, you know, being an expansion team were, an, I think, a natural fit. And, you know, he, he brought them, I think, some immediate, you know, credibility as a franchise uh, because, you know, Isaiah's, at least his intellect was so well-respected. And I, I, I think uh, he kind of proved himself really right away. The very first, uh, his very first draft as GM, the, the first pick in Raptors history, um, you know, people were, that, that draft was in Toronto and everyone wanted, you know, Ed O'Bannon, who was the, the final fours, uh, most outs, I think, was he final four most outstanding player at UCLA? I, but I, he was, by he was, he was so. their best player anyway, by clearly. Wouldn't and, award contender for sure. They yeah. might've won it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, that was clearly the crowd favorite, you know, they were chanting, you know, we want Ed. And Isaiah Thomas, you know, drafts, you know, kind of good symmetry here. He, he drafts, you know, a little point guard, Damon Stoudemire, and he got booed. And but the thing is, you know, he had the, you know, the guts to make the unpopular pick because it was the right pick. Damon Stoudemire, you know, not a not an all time great player, but he was rookie of the year. You know, he was um, an excellent player, you know, right out of the box. And, you know. Like if you look at Isaiah's draft record, um, as a GM, it's actually really, really good. Um, his record in trades and free agent signings, you know, notwithstanding, I don't think those either of those are something to, you know, put on a plaque somewhere. But you know, his 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 um his ability as a talent evaluator, I think, is really good. Um, I I think that, you know, even today, I think he would be, you know, an asset just as a scout. Like I, I think he, he that's something that he uh, clearly showed a an aptitude for because it, it wasn't just Damon Sodomite, you know, the net, he, he drafted Marcus Camby, who was probably his worst draft pick is, is the Raptors. But I mean, it's Marcus Camby. who's was defensive player of the year, a wonderful career in the NBA. Yes. There were better players drafted after Marcus Camby, but he was, you know, he was the consensus number two, you know, player in that draft. And, you know, he, he picked up Tracy McGrady, uh, you know, I think with the ninth pick in the draft and that, that, that was an absolute heist. And, you know, the, the Raptors were never really, uh, you know, great. Uh, they they did have to move uh, Marcus Camby for Charles Oakley, which along with the drafting of Vince Carter kind of accelerated their growth into being a playoff team. Uh, but I I think the, the job that Isaiah did um, with Toronto, even though he's only there for the first few years, I think I think it was really underrated. Uh, he, he did the opposite of what a lot of teams do. He you know, he packed it with veterans, you know, Alvin Robertson, John Long, um, guys that would, you know, you know, end of their prime, you know, some, you know, in John Long's case, he'd been retired, I think, for five years. Uh, but, you know, he he stocked that expansion team with, you know, really older players that could bring the younger players along and, and kind of show them the ropes and take Like today, it's just teams want to stock their entire roster with 19, 20 year olds, you know, it, nine times out of 10, it doesn't work. I actually liked Isaiah's philosophy there as far as team building. Um, I, I like that there's a reason why he isn't a, a, a GM today. Like he outside of the draft, I don't think he did, you know, an exceptional job, but 
you know, with, with the Raptors, I, I think that's something you can look back on and say, okay, you know, he's not just a basketball player. You know, he, he, he can be a, a, a decent front office guy too. So just kind of, um, you know, after, after the finishes up with the Raptors, um, you know, he kind of bounces around for a little bit, does some yeah. broadcasting. Uh, I think he got involved with the CBA there for a little bit. Uh, I think he owned the CBA as a matter of yeah, fact. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was just, if I can interject. Yeah. The, he gets yeah. A, a bad rap for the CBA. Some of it deserved. I think some of it not because, you know, that was when he took over the CBA it was around the time the NBA decided to start their own developmental league, you know, and, and I think he was quoted at the time, you know, once the NBA, you know, he, he wanted to make the CBA directly, tied to the NBA as a, as a developmental league, but the NBA went in another direction said, okay, we don't need the CBA at all. We can just create our own thing from the ground up. And, you know, once that decision was made, you know, the, the, the fate of the CBA was, was sealed, whether it didn't really matter what Isaiah did, in my opinion, like, I, I'm not going to say he ran it. I, I don't want to say like he ran this, the, the CBA um, exceptionally well, but it, I, I don't see any other way, uh, the CBA was going to stay afloat, you know, whether Isaiah uh, had control of, uh, of the league or not. Right. And then, um, you know, kind of transitioning into coaching, uh, Isaiah takes over for Larry Bird mm -hmm. with the Pacers, gets him to the playoffs three times in a row. Obviously the yeah. records, records weren't that great. Um, it's kind of weird when you look at that though. I mean, that team was a really, uh, kind of a young team that was on the cusp of becoming one of the league's best teams. It's, it's interesting that, that Isaiah didn't get too many more coaching. I mean, I know obviously the Knicks, it was really bad and all that went really, you know, poorly, but yeah. it's, it's kind of odd to me that after those three years with the Pacers and, and kind of, you know, where he got that team in good shape before it handed over to Rick Carlisle, that, um, that he didn't get more coaching opportunities. Yeah, that 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 his Pacers tenure, uh, and I followed it pretty closely at the time. I all right, people look at his people look at his his coaching tenure at the Pacers, and they see that he was coaching a team that just had just made the finals, and they just they just assume that um, he didn't do as good a job as coaching them as Larry Bird did, which is ridiculous. It was an entirely different team from o, from two thousand to one, other than Reggie Miller and. Uh, you know, to an extent, Jalen Rose, uh, who uh, was was moved shortly thereafter, you know, the next year for run our test. Uh, like Mark Jackson was gone. Rick Smith was gone. Uh, they they had moved uh, Dale Davis for Jermaine O'Neal on one of the great, you know, trade heists of the 2000s. Uh, like Isaiah was almost starting over from scratch. Like he had Reggie Miller. Yeah, but he didn't really have anyone else that was uh, a major part on that. I mean, I think the second most important player from that finals team that he inherited was Austin Crozier. Like, it, and, and like you said, he did get a very young team to the playoffs, a, a team with a lot of guys that were in their early twenties. Uh, and yes, they, they kind of, you could argue they underperformed a little bit once they got there, especially in uh, 2003 where they, they looked like they were ascending and then they, kind of hit a skid at the end of the year and got bounced by the Celtics who they were favored to beat. Uh, but I mean, it was kind of, it was pretty clear. He had him on the right path. And, and there's, there's a little story here. Um, Jermaine O'Neal, who was an impending free agent, uh, 
that last after Isaiah's last season there like he he loved playing with uh, for Isaiah so much like he he told the Pacers like he would resign he he would take their uh he he would take their max contract or whatever it was at the time the most that they could get, offer him uh as long as they promised that Isaiah would return as coach and they resigned him you know and shortly after they fired Isaiah anyway which was kind of a really cold way to end it. It sounds a lot, it, it sounds really bad. And it was like, it took, I think it took Jermaine O'Neal uh, a little while to get over it, but you also have to understand Rick Carlisle, the Pistons had just fired Rick Carlisle in that, who was one of the brightest you know coaches in the league. And they had a chance to go from Isaiah to Rick Carlisle, uh, which I, I, I think 30 out of 30 GMs, you know, make that upgrade if they can. And it has nothing to do with Isaiah. Rick Carlisle is one of the top coaches ever at the pro level. It was just one of those things where, I, like, if they had just fired Isaiah at the end of the 2003 season, I, I think it would have been kind of a raw deal, but I think people would have understood it because a lot of coaches in Isaiah's position, you know, would got fired, you know, even though they were successful. Uh, but just the fact that it looked like they were going to keep Isaiah around and they kind of put up a, a front just to make Jermaine O'Neal happy until they got Jermaine O'Neal's signature. And then it was, okay, no, on second thought, you know, we're, we're not going to keep Isaiah around. We're, we're, we're going with Rick Carlisle. But I, again, I think he had an underrated career as a, as a head coach. I don't know, to your point, I don't know if he was that interested in being a head coach long-term. I, I think if he was, I think he would have gotten another opportunity because his, his track record, I don't think was, one that you look at and say, this guy doesn't deserve another chance. Right. Uh, so then um, just kind of moving on to kind of, kind of the next, next topic here. This is a very interesting career that people look back on. And, and it's, it's very, um, he had an interesting career where people don't look back on him as fondly as they probably should. And, and, and there's a lot, there's a lot there. There's, you know, keeping Jordan off the all-star team, whether he did it or did not do it, you know, he'll never. It was a freeze out. A freeze out, right. Yeah, like he, Jordan was there on the all-star team, but it, and I think this has been since, this has since been debunked where I think it was kind of those made up grudges that Jordan was famous for. Because yeah. I don't think if you look at that, that all-star game, Jordan played at a rookie. I don't think you can see any evidence that, Isaiah Thomas made an effort not to get him involved. I, I think it was just, but the thing is, it stuck with him because, you know, and we're going to get into this, I'm sure, um, because, you know, the one guy accusing Isaiah was Michael Jordan. And right. you know, when Michael Jordan accuses you of something, that generally sticks. It, it's kind of interesting, you know, outside of his comments on, on Larry Bird, um, it seems like a lot of the things that, uh, that, Isaiah is sort of accused of saying is there, we really don't have any proof of it. You know, there's the thing, you know, the freezing out Jordan or the stuff that he may or may not have said about uh, magic Johnson. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, he, it's like, he became the scapegoat, the villain, the mm -hmm. bad guy you could definitely point your finger at. And I wonder how much of that has to do with him just being a part of that bad boys team. And that, you know, it, it, that, it, that everything just kind of got wrapped up in that. That, that is exactly, uh, I think, what it is. Uh, 
people forget like when Isaiah came into the NBA it was magic and it was bird you know more, more succinctly it was the Lakers and it was the Celtics and then there was the Sixers on the side I mean other than that everybody else in the league was just trying to stay afloat like literally trying to stay solvent from year to year like they were they were just happy to have the Lakers and Celtics come to the arena and kick their ass because that meant a sold out crowd uh like People love to wax poetically about the 80s because of the Lakers-Celtic rivalry, but, you know, let me dissolve anybody uh, of any misconceptions. It was not a competitive era by any means. It, it, it was the Lakers and the Celtics just preying on everybody. And Isaiah came into the league, on, you know, on the lowest team. You know, you could pick and choose but if, if, who was the worst run organization between them and the Cavs. Uh, Pistons were arguably worse. And he came in at the very bottom you know, with his trash heap franchise, you know, and yeah, he had a lot of help, but through force of will, he kind of pulled himself and the Pistons out of, you know, the dumpster eventually to mediocrity, eventually to contender status. And eventually like that was, I think his legacy from the beginning is he, he got them from nowhere to the finals. He got them past bird. He got them past magic. He got them past the NBA's darling and Michael Jordan three times. But the thing is, you don't, he wouldn't have been able to do that if he was, if he was afraid of being ruthless. And I, Isaiah absolutely was ruthless. And I, I don't mean that in a negative uh, connotation. It was just, you know, he, he wasn't out there to make friends. Uh, he was out there to win. He was out there to create a legacy for himself. And, you know, he couldn't do it the way that Bird Magic and Jordan did, where they could just go out, smile and, you know, score. Th Even though that's not exactly how it went, that was the perception that these were the class guys that went out and just dominated because they had the, the, they were the super team guys. They were the 6'6 six, six to 6'9, six, you know, classical, you know, dominant wing. I, Isaiah was this little six foot guard, uh, you know, trying to get himself in that same class. And yeah, he... He stepped on, you know, a lot of uh, other players and a lot of people. He stepped on Bird. He stepped on Magic along the way. But you know what? And I always like to say this, you know, all of the other great players from the 80s, not named, you know, Magic and Bird, you know, they're all sitting on their dignity with a lot of friends. They have no rings. Because uh, other than that one year with the, where the Sixers loaded their team up, Bird and Magic dominated that whole decade. Like right. it was just only – Isaiah was the only one that broke through. The only one um before bird and, and magic eventually you know aged themselves out and yeah the, it, it has followed them especially the way that the the legacy ended where they he committed the ultimate cardinal sin of offending michael jordan at michael jordan's you know peak popularity and that followed him you know the dream team snub which i i don't think people hold jordan to this day i don't think they hold his feet to the fire enough for that because you know they're i think today people are still kind of afraid of offending him uh but we we go into you know recent years where i you, we asked we had the bad boy documentary i don't know how many how long was it six seven years ago yeah something like that. um yeah and yes it, it brought the pistons back to the spotlight but i i, I think it also kind of it in my own interactions on uh twitter with isaiah I, I have gotten this uh, feeling uh, loud and clear that it still bothers him that the the pissed, that his his best teams are just 
everyone uh, today thinks all they did was, you know, hit people and foul and intimidate that, that they were just bullies, that they weren't a good basketball team. And I, I think the documentary kind of did a disservice, even though it was very popular, it was well received. Um, you know, we all loved it, you know, you know, is, is native Detroiters and, the problem is, is how it was perceived, you know, nationally, like people that had no knowledge of the bad boys just looked at that documentary because it leaned 90% of it was just, you know, hard fouls and, and violence. And, and yeah, that was part of their, that was a big part of their personality, but they were a really damn good basketball team. And yeah. I think the documentary kind of overshadowed that a little bit. And I think that has probably bothered Isaiah a, a, a great deal, just as much as the last dance has, um, you know, which, yeah, again, the last dance a couple of years ago. Uh, people forget during that pandemic, we had no sports going on. Like the last dance, everybody, that, that was almost like a flashback to like 1983, like who shot JR? <laughs> like yeah. it, it was like everybody was in, yeah, it was like uh, everyone was in front of their TV, you know, for the first time in decades because we had nothing else to do, you know. Appoint, on, on, appointment on, television. It yeah, was it was, it was one of the very first appointment uh, television uh uh shows at least uh, among the sports crowd you know this this century and it got so many eyes on it and yes it, it paid some respect to isaiah but again it, it it emphasized the fact that they walked off it you know it had pippin especially and horace grant doing their little victory lap you know calling you know the detroit the, the detroit pistons bitches which i doubt they ever did that on the floor uh but yeah, I, I think Isaiah's and look, if um if the best thing that you did in your professional life anyway, if you've had somebody that's constantly tearing it down, you know, for 30 years, you know, saying it, it didn't matter or lessening the uh, or diminishing the the significance of it. And that person was one of the most famous people, you know, famous athletes in the world, he still is today. You know, if you had a guy that was constantly doing that to you, you know, you'd feel like you were being ganged up on too. You'd feel a little bit uh, resentful. You'd feel like you'd have to defend your legacy. And that's, I think that's what Isaiah is kind of feels like he's forced to do uh, more than he should, uh, which is, you know, he, he he's constantly having to defend himself and he has no reason to like his, his track record his resume speaks for itself he's one of the greatest players of all time right. uh he accomplished something where i mean if you look at the the top 75 uh list i guess technically it's 76 players but the 75th anniversary team like there were only three players on that list that were drafted in the last 50 years that were six one or, or shorter uh it's isaiah alan iverson there's chris paul now, how many of those guys have championship hardware? One. It's just Isaiah. Yeah. It's just Isaiah. Like that's how unique that is how unique Isaiah is in the history of the game. Uh is the modern game anyway, that that he could do what he did, accomplish what he did, you know, despite you know the obstacles, despite you know being drafted to a team that had no record of success at any point ever. And, and you know, he, he did that. He dragged them to the mountaintop, won back-to-back. -back they were only the second team to win back-to-back -back championships. Like, I know it's it feels like everybody does it now, but, like, he, at the time that the Pistons did it, they were only, like, the second or third team, you know, in NBA history that had done that, like, or the second, you know, collection of 
players that have done that. So yeah, I, I don't doubt or I, I don't uh, blame Isaiah at all for even if people on the outside uh, think that he's um, taking it a little too personally, that he needs to move past it. I, I would ask yourself to put your, uh, yourself in Isaiah's shoes and, and try to see things through his perspective. Uh, I, I think any one of us would be extremely frustrated uh, by kind of how he's being perceived today. Wow. Um... You know, well said. I, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, the only, there's only one more thing that, that we can really touch on in this episode on Isaiah Thomas is uh, his uh, cameo on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which, come on, man, it's my gimmick. Of course I'm going to bring that up. He was on the 11th uh, episode of the first season, the basketball episode. Will took him to the hole quite a few times. Uh, that was a big deal to me as a kid. You know, Isaiah was like a hero and Will Smith is, you know, I know a lot of people are going to have Will Smith takes. I don't even want to hear him. The man is, he's my hero. My heroes converging on screen. It was, it was huge for me. Do you remember this? <laughs> I remember. All right. I, 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 I did watch Fresh Prince uh, quite a bit uh, growing up. I do remember the, I don't remember exactly how the episode went, but I do remember him. He had like a Pistons shirt on. Did, he, had, he, was in, how it went? he was in he was in his full uniform so it's like a it's like a okay, uh, a daydream okay. that uh, will is you know will joins oh, the basketball right. team i do remember that and he's daydreaming about you know yeah. beating isaiah <laughs> and it's like an air jordan-esque type uh commercial for will's shoes and uh yeah it's good times i i, I always uh always love that um it was a big moment for me as a as a young child uh, so, all right, well, that's it. I mean, that's Isaiah Thomas in a, in a nutshell. Um, you know, uh, you want to get into a little bit of draft talk before we get out of here, some current draft talk? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not promising that I'm going to do this every week, uh, yeah. but I, I do often, especially uh, when it pertains to the Pistons, you know, something will happen, we'll have a game, a current event, and you know, something will remind me of something that happened, you know, decades before. And I, I, I want to go back to the lottery uh, when the Pistons, despite having, you know, being tied for the best odds, they landed, you know, fifth. And everyone was kind of up in arms about it. But I, I still thought that I, I looked at the board and the way it was set up. And I looked at Sacramento at four. And I, I, I wasn't entirely, I like, I didn't put money on it or anything, but I, I was fairly convinced that the Pistons, the way it was set up would have a great chance at selecting Jaden Ivey. Right. Not that I would have been unhappy with, with Keegan Murray at all, but I thought Jaden Ivey was, you know, clearly the best guard prospect in the draft. I, I think he could potentially be a game changer. And just because of the, the Kings drafting uh, landing fourth, I didn't think it was a bad position for the Pistons to be in, even, even in the moment. And it reminded me a lot of, and again, I'm not going to have a personal anecdote that relates to everything. Uh, but in, in this instance, uh, the 1994 lottery, uh, I, as a, as a kid, uh, I had a, a partial ticket package and the, the Pistons uh, invited, you know, they had an open draft lottery party. Over, I think it was at one of the sports bars in the palace and I remember walking in and there was an open seat next to Don Chaney. 
who was head coach at the time. And we were watching, I would think it was game seven between the Knicks and the Bulls. And the draft lottery would have been, uh, was shown at, uh, scheduled for halftime. And, you know, I asked, you know, coach Cheney, if I could sit down, he, he said, yeah. And I was just excited to be there. I, I might've said two words from the whole time to him the whole time. Like I was, you know, this intimidated, you know, 12 year old, but, um, when it came time for the lottery and everybody there wanted Glenn Robinson, I don't care who got landed the number one pick. Like he was seen as the prize of that lottery. And, you know, even myself, like I, I saw him at Purdue, you know, a lot, like he was amazing. And, you know, everyone had our hearts set on landing that number one pick and getting him. And I remember the disappointment because the Pistons had the second, uh, I think I want to say they had the second best odds in that lottery. They had the second worst record uh, behind Dallas. And when it, when the, uh, the card that was drawn, when they drew the Pistons card at the third pick, uh, everyone, you know, the, the mood in the room kind of dropped. But I looked over at Don Cheney, and I don't know who he was sitting on the other side of him. It was another guy in a suit. It wasn't Billy McKinney, the GM, because he was representing the Pistons at the lottery. But I forget who he was talking to. But you could see, like, the gears turn in his, turn in his head. And not 20 seconds after they'd announced the, the order, which was Milwaukee 1, Dallas 2, Detroit 3, he looks, he he's talks, uh, leans over to the guy next to him and says, we're getting Grant Hill. And his reasoning for that was uh, Dallas. This, this, that was the uh, Dallas's third straight uh, season picking in the top four. And the previous two years, they had picked wings. They had Jim Jackson and Jamal Mashburn. And they badly, badly needed a point guard. And not that, not that Jason Kidd was any like constantly great player, Hall of Famer. Right. Uh, but just the way that the draft order fell, I don't know if there is any other team that could have landed in that second slot that would have picked Jason Kidd over Grant Hill. But I can remember that like it was yesterday, like Don Chaney knew it immediately. Uh, like it was hard for him to contain his excitement. And he was not a very excitable guy, but yeah, he, he immediately leans over to the guy and says, you know, Dallas is going to get, take Jason kid. We are going to get Grant Hill at three and which is exactly what happened. And that kind of stuck with me because, you know, for every lottery after that, it, it's not just where you land. It's looking at, it, it's the board. It's looking at the needs of the, of the teams that are above you. And sometimes they break in a way where uh, the guys that are projected, the one, two, three, four, five, six best prospects in the draft, they don't always get drafted in that order. Uh, so, it, and, and I don't want to toot my own horn about, you know, predicting the Jaden Ivey thing. I've been wrong a million times. I just, that, that, that's something that there was a direct parallel in that, in this year's draft that made me think of the Grant Hill draft, that we got a guy that, shouldn't have slid to us that has I think star potential and just it was weird because the the Pistons got unlucky in the lottery but they got lucky at the same time so always always try to look at the board don't just look at the lottery uh even if the Pistons are no longer in the lottery if you're just looking at the lottery period um in any given year look at the board and look at the teams that land those picks and try to do the math and see if those teams line up, uh, line up perfectly with the players that are select uh, slotted to go to those spots. 
anyway, that, that, that was my 10 cents on the whole uh, situation. Well, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, put in a little bit of a take here. Um, you know, I'm more comfortable personally with Jaden Ivey than I, than I would have been with the guys, the four guys that were selected before him. I mean, I, you know, I think Ben Caro is a, a, a good player. I think he'll be fine. I don't think he should have went number one personally. Um, Chet, Chet scares the hell out of me because he's, he's so skinny. You know, I know everybody wants to say Giannis, Giannis, but he, he is not Giannis. Giannis oh, is no, a not, not, not in any, I, I love his competitiveness though. Yeah. Like he, he is, he is real thin, but he plays like a guy that thinks he's 250 pounds. That's why I, I like about his potential because he's not Sean Bradley. He doesn't get knocked over. Uh, like if he does, you're going to have to force him over because he, he will get up in your face. Uh, I, I do like his competitiveness. Um, but go ahead. I, yeah, Paolo, you're right. I was shocked when he went one, two. I would have went uh, right. Jabari Smith. But yeah. look, Paolo may, Paolo may turn out to be a better player. Who knows? I think he was the better fit, certainly, for Orlando, which goes back to what I said before. Because um, some teams, you know, would prefer, you know, a better fit over the more talent, which I think Jabari Smith has. Um, but I, I think he'll fit in well because Orlando has a bunch of defensive guys. They needed a, they needed a badly needed a shot creator. And Paolo is known for nothing else in the NBA. He'll probably be known for being a, being a big man that can create his own shot. But I, I think, you know, Jabari Smith dropping to, to Houston at three was a major coup for them too, which I don't think enough people are, are talking about. And, you know, Keegan Murray is, uh, you know, I don't know what to think of Keegan yet. You know, it's, it's at Iowa. It's like, you know, it's not that big of a basketball school really. And, um, I don't know. You know, I don't know what, I think he's going to be fine, but I, I really, I just think Ivy is, is rookie of the year potential. And I, I know, yeah. I know people might say that because, you know, Hey, I'm a Pistons fan, you know, but, right. but I think he would have been that way no matter where he would have drafted to. I, I, I mean, I really think that he's, he's the steal of the draft and I'm glad the Pistons are the team that stole him. And, um, and just what a, what a master class of, of general managership, if that's not, that's oh God, not a, that's yeah. not a word. Just, I mean, just unbelievable what Troy Weaver did mm -hmm. to, to walk out of there with Jalen Duran for a, a bag of chips, essentially a, a 2025 uh, Milwaukee bucks pick, you know, the, the bucks are probably going to be playing in the finals in 2024 for all we know. I, that's nothing. I mean, nothing. They gave the Knicks nothing and they took on Kemba Walker's contract. Goodbye, whatever. It doesn't yeah. even matter. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, they bought bought a lottery pick for for nine million dollars, yeah. and and a a late twenties, you know, first round pick three years from now. Just the things that you can do when you have cap room and no one else has cap room. It's not all about signing free agents, right? Like Jack McCloskey would have been in heaven if he were a GM today, just because the all of the back in his day cap space wasn't a thing. Now that would be another asset that he would have been able to use at his disposal. All right. Well, that's going to be our show for this week. Um, you know, speaking of the draft, uh, real quick, uh, uh, something that we're we're going to do on this show is, you know, we're it, this is going to be a piston centric show, but we're also going to get into a lot of NBA history because what we don't want to do is talk about every single piston that you love right away. This show will last four months and and will go away. So, you know, we want to kind of balance things out. So next week's episode is going to be a redraft. 
And every other week from there, it's going to be a piston, a redraft, a piston, a redraft. So next week, we're going to be doing the 1985 NBA draft, excuse me, 1984 NBA draft. That's Michael Jordan. That's Akeem Olajuwon or Akeem Olajuwon, depending on how old you are. And uh, <laughs> and if you remember that he was just Akeem. And, uh, and we're going to go through that, at least the lottery picks, first 15 picks or so. And we're going to kind of talk about how that draft should have gone um, or how we would go. Obviously, I think everybody knows who the number one pick is going to be. Um, and, uh, and then from there, we'll, we'll come back with you uh, for another episode uh, covering another piston. We'll have to decide who that's going to be. And uh, we'll see when we get to that point, but thank you for listening. Um, I just, I also want to give a shout out to everybody on Twitter who gave us such a great response when we announced this show and, um, definitely definitely love that and thank you for following us and uh, we look forward to seeing where this show can go and we look forward to growing this thing with you and um, once again thanks and uh, before we get out of here Keith do you want to uh, give them your your social media creds and tell them where they can find you right, uh, guys right now there's really one place you can find me uh, charlatan 28 c-h-a-r-l-o-t-t-e-a-n uh, 28 uh, again, my name is Keith Black Trudeau. I'm active quite frequently. Um, uh, I, I post historical, but not too much in the off season, but I, I, every now and then I will still put together, you know, that, that, that's when I try to get into my non-piston stuff where I'll try to put together a, uh, uh Alonzo morning or Dikembe Mutombo, uh, block shots package. Um, like I, I, I have this massive, uh, inventory i call it the vault of you know old nba games and every now and then i'll i'll when the mood strikes me i'll cut them up and share them on twitter and it will usually be something that isn't available on youtube so uh that is where you can find me uh i'm i usually active uh at least a little bit seven days a week yeah it's a real blast from the past and and um you know and that's kind of how i how i found keith you know keith and i don't we don't really know each other all that well. We just started this venture together, but, and, and, and I just, you know, I have been following you for over a year now and I love these videos because, you know, it brings me back to, to a simpler time in life when, when life was just about watching basketball and not anything yeah. else. But, uh, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, POD underscore Peyton. Um, you can read any of my work at pride of Detroit. I cover the Detroit lions. Um, Come chat with either of us. We're we're open to talk about Pistons. Uh, you want to talk Lions with me? I'm down with that too. And uh, we will see you guys next week.